Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. Welcome to those that are joining us physically in the auditorium, those that are joining us online. Thank you for worshiping with us. And if this is not your first time worshiping with us this year, you'll know that we are approximately 162 days into our theme for this year, becoming more like Jesus every day. And along that journey, Matthew has some words that helps us in becoming more like Jesus every day. And as you can see, our topic today is finding the narrow way. So along that journey, we're going to see things that will help us be more successful. In Matthew, and I'd like to thank you, Jacob, for the reading. Really appreciate that. And we plan to just kind of unpack and dissect, if you will, not like in biology with the frog, but dissect uh, the scriptures a little bit here. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, we find, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in his glory, pardon me, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Notice that the journey begins with denying self. Deny is to disown or abstain. And I don't know how many of you listen to the Passion for Christ uh, radio show that Bruce uh, puts on on the weekend, but in his June 3rd episode of the training program, he shared with us some words that Paul shared in reference to abstaining and what that looks like. And if you'd like to turn to your Bibles, or if you can read it up there, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, we find, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of salvation. What I'd like you to notice is by abstaining from fleshly lusts and by doing good works influences others to glorify God. That's what we're after. So it not only helps you, but it helps others as well. Now, on May 31st, if you were here, or if you listen to our sermons online, Paul Woody warned us against using our liberty as an opportunity to fulfill the lusts of the flesh in his lesson on the fruits of the spirit. And in Galatians, it expounds upon the works of the flesh. In Galatians chapter five and verse 19, we find now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, Fornication, uncleanness, rudeness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, 
dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not inherit the kingdom of God. So what do they inherit? Now, in our world today, I have a question for you. Do you think that there is a problem with the works of the flesh? Do you think that that's a uh, prominent problem? Well, Dr. Jordan Dancer, I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but he answered this question on December 5th, 2021, in a lesson that he gave on overcoming sexual sin, where he shared statistics with us from a 2014 study that 35% of Christian men and 17% of Christian women have had an affair. According to this statistics, the work of the flesh is a chronic problem in our world. And these statistics were collected from a nationally representative sample of 500 U.S. adults nationwide that were married or are still married. Now, that's how many people self-disclose. I wonder what the real number is. I'm thankful for lessons like the one Paul gave that helps us to address this sin problem that plagues our world. And one of the scriptures he shared with us is from Galatians chapter 5 and 16, which simply says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Seems like it's a simple take two and call me in the morning, right? Very straightforward. Our primary text in Matthew 16, 25, says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do we have any biblical examples of someone actually losing their life and finding it? I don't think we have to look any further than the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, I think his, his conversion, I'd like to just kind of unpack that, if you will. Acts chapter 9 and beginning in verse 1. Then Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the disciples of Damascus so that if he found any who were in the way, of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So would you say that uh, Paul was an advocate of Christians at all? Seems like he went out of his way to make things uh, as difficult as possible for them. So I think that makes his conversion even that more profound, if you will. Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. If we could just pause for a minute. If you lost your sight, what would be your first inclination? I'm thinking seek medical attention. I mean, probably 911 on my phone, I can't see. But that's not what that's not what Paul did. And I wonder during those times, how often do we rely on our own strength, our own knowledge versus seeking God's help immediately as as a first option, not a second option or a last option. I pray that we are more like Saul in this instance. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas of one called Saul of Taurus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive sight. Now, something I'd like to bring to your attention, when Ananias is first called, he responds right away, here I am, Lord. And right after that, he's told to go. Now, notice that go is in a small uh, case. But he's, he's given what he's supposed to do. As we continue, we see then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man. So in, in, a, in a way, I'm thinking he, there's a little bit of pushback here. He was told to go, but it doesn't seem like he's going yet. He's saying, wait a minute. There's some stuff I know that you might not know about this, this fellow. Um, and I think that's interesting. How many times are we that way? We act as though God doesn't know the whole story. Like, we need to inform him. Like, like Lord, did you know that X, Y, and, and Z? I think sometimes we forget who we're talking to. Kind of like Ananias here. So... As we continue on, we find that, but the Lord said to him, go. So we see now that go is an uppercase because he's had to repeat himself. He didn't he didn't obey right away. He felt the need to get some more clarification. Um, and I don't think he needed that to go. I'm pretty sure he understood what go meant, but um, somehow he needed some more assurance. <clears throat> so the scripture says, but the Lord said to him, go. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. 
For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. How many things he must suffer for my namesake. Now, along with commanding Ananias to go for a second time, the Lord explains his divine plan for Saul's life to Ananias. Now, at this point, Ananias has a choice to make. See, because he's already shared with us, he's well versed in Saul. So he has a lot of information there so he can lean to his own understanding of what he knows about Saul and act accordingly. Or he can be obedient after being told a second time. And I'm just wondering how many times does the Lord tell us over and over what we must do? How many times does he have to tell us? Hmm. So. I was thinking in terms of saving his own life. Now, we're not talking about somebody who just talks harshly to you. We're talking about somebody who might take your life, a very dangerous person. <clears throat> and I wonder how, how does Ananias behave there? It says that Ananias went. So this time he didn't have to get any more explanation. I think he made a choice. I'm going to trust. And I don't know if we, um, I know the song person asked me, but I think trust and obey uh, definitely is appropriate. At this point, he went. So he trusted and he obeyed. He went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There were a number of things that kind of jumped out to me. For one, he was he trusted and obeyed. But secondly, how he addressed Saul, because I'm thinking, wasn't he just saying, I don't know if you read his resume, but. This is all the bad stuff that he's done, and he's requested even more authority to do even more things. But it seems like he definitely trusted and obeyed because he addressed Paul as brothers, pardon me, Saul, as brother Saul. I'm thinking he's definitely trusting what God says there. And then it seems like there's almost a prophecy here because it's saying, okay, now in addition to your sight, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it seems like we got a bonus uh, in there, if you will. And I just wonder, how long does it take? Because we're seeing that this is something that's going to happen uh, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. How long does it take for that to happen? Acts chapter 9 and verse 18, it says immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. It seems like this, this is a whole, I don't know if you've ever seen like a 180 change in direction because we started off with this person having a long resume of torturing and killing Christians and trying to get even more authority to do more things to them, to one that's proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Totally different 
direction from his own mouth. Does this sound like the same person? That's all I want to ask you. Does it sound like the same person? Let me ask you this. Have you ever witnessed this type of change in someone where you knew them to be a certain way and maybe some time has passed since you've seen them and then you run across them again and you can hardly believe that that's the same person? Seems like that same type of change took place with Saul. And maybe it's happened in your own life. Maybe God's made that type of change with you. Acts chapter 9 and verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I'm thinking a total 180 here. This is a total 180. And everyone who heard him could not believe that this is probably the same person. I need to see your ID uh, birth certificate, social security card. We need to be sure because you, you're not acting any way like the person that we knew you to be. Your resume, if you will. Now, is there any doubt or question about Saul finding a new life in Jesus? Do we need any more proof? All those who heard him would testify to this genuine Conversion. Now, in, in addition to those who personally heard him, I'd like you to consider this for a moment. His conversion is written in at least 100 million Bibles that are printed every year. So we have the witnesses who actually heard him who were amazed. And then you have all of us who have the opportunity to read. So we didn't hear it, but we read it, so we have even more witnesses of this conversion. And when I shared that stat with Bruce, he said, well, what about the downloads? You're missing that. So I, I went back, and with the downloads, there's 250 million downloads of the Bible app of this conversion story. So even more witnesses. So do you think the courtroom could hold all the witnesses of the conversion of Saul finding a new life in Jesus Christ. So he spoke for himself. He provided evidence. He has all of these witnesses to include us. Our primary scripture says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I was just trying to think about that for a minute. If you were to receive everything in the world for your soul, you would still be getting a raw deal by a long shot. Let me tell you why. See, because the actual price was Jesus. So the riches of the world don't even come close to Jesus. Not even close. But how many 
trade their soul for a fraction, a fraction of what God has and values us at. So it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Despite this high number of Bible downloads and printed Bibles and the number of Bibles sold in the U.S. is 20 million per year. So despite all of those sales, the religious landscape of the United States continue, continues to decline. Despite all those numbers I gave you, the Pew Research Center telephone survey conducted in 2018 and 2019 revealed that 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over that decade. So what do you think is causing the decline in the number of Christians? Why do you think there is less and less of us? I think we have one answer here in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Maybe not the answer, but I think one answer. It says here, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we've talked about the lust of the flesh. We have not talked about the lust of the eye or the pride of life. So according to the Believer's Bible Commentary, the lust of the eye applies to such evil desires that may appear from what we see, being tempted by something we see. With that being said, is the lust of the eye a problem in our world today? Do you think that that's a problem? Do you think that's contributing to the decline in the number of Christians? According to Jeff Log, counseling and psychology professor at Southwest Assemblies of God University, about 40 million American adults regularly visit pornography sites. 47% of Christians said that pornography is a major problem in the home. With that being said, do you think that lust of the eye is a problem? Are those numbers and percentages high enough for you to consider it to be a problem? So what about the pride of life? Again, according to the Believer's Bible commentary, the pride of life is an unholy ambition for self-display or self-glory. And I was thinking of it this way. Anyone with the mentality of I'm the man or I'm the woman, I'm thinking fits this category. So do we have a biblical example of someone exhibiting this pride of life? And I don't think we have to look any further than King Nebuchadnezzar. I think he provides a great example for us to learn from, from Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 30. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, we find the king spoke saying, 
is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think King Nebuchadnezzar is a team player. Got a lot of I, my, 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 my. Um, and that's unfortunate. Now notice, he's quick to take credit for, he didn't put himself there. This is the result of, of God. Now John chapter 15 and verse 5 gives us some, some advice. It says, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, this is the critical part, you can do nothing. Now, I'm thinking King Nebuchadnezzar, that never occurred to him because he's saying, I, my power, and my majesty. I wonder if there is any risk in thinking that way. Sometimes God rewards us for our work, whether that's good work or bad work immediately. Sometimes he waits, sometimes it's immediate. And I wonder in King Nebuchadnezzar's situation, which applies? Daniel chapter 4 and verse 31. While the words, while the word was still in his mouth. To me, I don't know if you ever heard this phrase, getting the taste slap out of your mouth. It seems like to me this kind of applies. He really didn't even wait for the judgment. It was immediate. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass you over until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled. Concerning Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. King Nebuchadnezzar, not only provides us a biblical example of the pride of life, but he also gives us an, an example of God rewarding us for our works, whether those works are good or bad. And sometimes that reward is immediate, which we see here. We would be wise to listen to what the scripture says to us in Matthew chapter 16 and 27, where it says... For the Son of Man will come in his glory, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, some would say works are not important and that can't work your way to heaven. And that's true. I would agree with that. But works do have their place. Because if you do evil works, we see you're going to be rewarded for those evil works. And then we saw earlier, by your good works, men Glorify God. So those works do matter. They do matter. Keep that in mind. So do we have another biblical example of God rewarding someone for his or her 
work. In Exodus chapter 3, and beginning at verse 9, the children of Israel help us to answer that question. We find in verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the opposition with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So they petition the right person. They petition God. And in verse, pardon me, chapter 12 and verse 50, we see, thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to their armies. What I'd like to draw to your attention, not necessarily that the petition was answered immediately. That's not what I'm trying to bring to your attention. What I'd like to bring to your attention is the obedience and then the deliverance. The obedience is very important. It seems like they're tied very closely together. And I think Samuel puts it this, this way. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, this is important, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, and the, and to heed than the fat of rams. So obedience is very, very important. A lot of times we look at we look at what is the what's the cost. I remember when there was an there was an oil leak going on at one time and then there was a fine that was associated per day with the oil leak. But the company looked at how much profit are we making? Can we just offset what the cost is and continue doing what we're doing? In that case, we're not going to correct anything because we can afford the cost. Here, that does not apply. We definitely cannot afford the cost here because we already talked about the cost exceeds all the riches in the world. So the stakes are far too high of what we're talking about here. So obedience, I don't think we put enough emphasis and importance on obedience. We saw that the results are immediate following obedience. Matthew 16, 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they, till they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. If we believe that passage, then I think it stands to reason that we should believe what's in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I think what's key here is the us. See, because you don't want to be on the outside of the us that we're talking about here. So how do you know what well, we've been talking about it all along? You can ask yourself these questions. Have I denied self? Have I lost my life? in pursuit of Christ? Have I forsaken the world? 
Do I do good works? Do those apply to you? If so, it may stand to reason you're a part of this us. But let's just say you're not a part of this us. You're still in the right place. Let me ask you these questions then. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been baptized? And if the answer to those questions is no, then none of these promises that I talked about apply to you. This deliverance doesn't apply to you. Key word, yet. You're in the right place once again. Have you been faithful in your relationship with Christ? Do you have another need, a spiritual need or any need that we can help you with? If you fall into any of those categories and you're joining us online, please reach out to our elders. But if you're here with us physically in the auditorium, we'd like you to come forward, have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.